Welcome, dear listener, to episode 22 of Weekend at Crombies. This month, we'll be looking at Bamboozled. Yes, welcome, uh, dear listener. I trust you have had an exciting month and have looked forward to, as Hugh described, episode 22 of Weekend at Crombies. That's a slightly different nomenclature to the to the process that I'm used to. It's actually volume two, episode 10. Oh, I do apologise. <laughs> Weekend at Crombies, that's actually fine. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. James Evans Esquire. To be or not to be, that's the mother question. And my name is Hugh. I will be editing this podcast alone. Me, myself, <laughs> moi. <laughs> and uh, yeah, welcome to um, welcome to the bamboozled episode of um, Weekend at Crombie. So hopefully, uh, neither Hugh nor I will be bamboozled in our review of the film. Ooh, on the nice basis link. That, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple of things to bear in mind to begin with before we go into the synopsis. Um, the and this, um, in all seriousness, I will. Um, be very conscious of the language that I use within the context of this particular review. Uh, Bamboozled is a difficult um, film to review um, as a a white European male. And and so, um, you know, rest assured that the language I use will not be as incendiary as the language which is in Bamboozled. I'll try my best anyway, Um, because it, it, it it is quite an incendiary film with a lot of incendiary language, necessarily so, actually, I think. But um. It, let, let's let's crack on with Bamboozle itself. So um, it's a Spike Lee joint, as he would describe it, um, from the year 2000. Um, it's a film which um, stars the the the, the character um, Pierre Delacroix, um, who is um, a, a Harvard-educated uh, African-American um, kind of television screenwriter and producer, effectively, and um, he has. Um, been uh, frustrated uh, and um, disappointed with the kind of opportunities that he's had in terms of writing particular scripts for uh, persons of colour um, or, or uh, African-Americans in general. Um, so what, what he does is that he, he effectively writes um, screenplays and, and produces television programmes that portray black people in America in a kind of positive light, I suppose, the kind of... Um, uh, what, what another uh, character in the film called Thomas Dunwitty, who is the kind of tactless, boorish uh, owner of the channel CNS calls Cosby clones. Yeah. Um, those kinds of programs which are effectively a bit toothless, um, you know, non-confrontational, non-threatening African-American family type um, sitcoms, effectively. Yeah. Although we should put it into context, when we describe Pierre Delacroix as a kind of a frustrated writer, he is mm. not sort of in his garret scribbling away. He is a very almost a yuppie clone. He has a very effective oh. way of speaking. He's very well turned out. He has an assistant. Yeah. He's clearly a person of, of note in this organisation, in the, the TV company. It's just that, again, Thomas Dunwitty um, is like the, the vice president or whatever in charge of this division and is just sort of yelling at him to bring him something new and fresh and yeah. again there was a, a very memorable moment early on in the thing when Thomas Dunwitty um, who is again the most crass individual who believes yeah. that he, he is he is deeply in tune with the African American culture um, yeah. and he's again he's, he's got um, his wall is full of posters he, and he's again uh, in a sense he's, he's Spike Lee's um, 
critique on Quentin Tarantino because he's this sort of yeah. that white man who thinks he's he's more uh, more black than a black man and he's therefore entitled to talk about it in these terms and this yeah. kind of stuff and then so Dunwitty is basically telling Pierre Lacroix bring me something new and fresh and and, and street um, yeah. and this so Delacroix the the first reaction he has to this I think he basically he wants to get out of his contract so he yeah, forms he does, a kind yeah. of um, he, he wants he wants to be fired effectively yeah. he doesn't resign he wants to be fired yeah he, he can't so, be fired yeah so his his, his yeah. solution is uh, he will create something that is so awful so obnoxious yeah. so um, deeply bigoted and racist yeah. that he will have to be fired again so that's 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 where it kicks off yeah it's the premise of the film effectively and 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 um, it, what's interesting about the Dunwitty character is that you know he he's he describes himself as being more black than Delacroix and Delacroix has this very affected. Uh, accent, um, uh, yeah, very posh accent, as it were. And, and Dunwitty's describes himself as being married to a person of colour. He has two mixed race children, etc., etc. So you know, it's 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 an odd kind of um, uh, counterpoint uh, that they have with it, with each other. And Delacroix basically goes away and thinks up with the most offensive and um, deeply racist idea for a television program that he can think of so he develops a minstrel show called mantan the new millennium minstrel show and it features black actors dressed in blackface effectively using extraordinarily racist jokes affectations characterizations and stereotypes and um harks back to slave era plantation um uh, kind of uh, kind of character acting in that particular kind of context, as it were. So it's a um, it, it, it's it's a television program that he fully expects will lead to him being fired from his contract um, in a way that is you know totally um, incomprehensibly racist and offensive to the broader population, both African American and the white population alike. Um, so what he does is that he finds two. Um, homeless uh, men, two homeless uh, African American men. Um, Womack, who um, is a is a is a kind of like a a, a, a chancer, a bit of a, a you know a street businessman, as it were, I guess in yeah. in, in many ways. And um, um, uh, Man Ray, um, who is a, a tap dancer, um, a very effective tap, tap dancer and dancer in in, in general. And um, they often perform outside of the uh, TV studio offices and um, Delacroix has some connection with them in the sense that he's often saying, you know, I'll do my best to try and get you a break in television, etc. And he thinks this is the opportunity for me to put together this minstrel show using these two characters. And he develops the program called Mantan um, and the Man Ray character um, is the tap dancing star of the program. And Womack plays his sidekick called Sleep and Eat. And they are uh, basically pitched as um, two stupid, um, again, slave era um, African-Americans who are on an Alabama plantation. Um, and uh, that's effectively the kind of the way that the show is pitched to Dunwitty with the expectation that um, Delacroix has that Dunwitty will immediately be absolutely um, outraged by this. But of course he's not. And in fact, he is he falls in love with the idea, pushes the idea further and further and becomes so kind of enamoured and um, in love with the idea itself. He takes it upon himself to personally persuade the powers that be at the station to put the pilot on and effectively to lead Delacroix to um, 
produce the show as he wishes in many ways. But there's a strange moment because, yeah, um, you're right, right up to the story so far, but there was a moment when uh, Dunwitty takes over the, the script revisions and everything and Delacroix seems quite oh, yes. angry that this has been taken away. And you do wonder, um, wasn't that the point for it to be very offensive? You know, how could have Dunwitty made it more so offensive than, <coughs> you know, Delacroix's offensive, but clearly he has done. Um, and it isn't just... Yes, yes. As, as an example, <coughs> Delacroix initially says that the programme, that the minstrel show will be uh, set in the projects yeah. and Dunwitty Dun says actually you know that's that's too safe that's too cozy let's set it in um, on a plantation and of course Delacroix is like outraged but it gets further and further and further from any kind of normalcy into this extraordinarily offensive um, show that's put on in all of just the the two the two main stars either they have again a house band who are also in blackface they have a number of supporting performers the the MC who comes on so they, they've yeah. filled now the cast with you know every possible um, stereotype and I guess actually coming it from not knowing you know the full um, American experience of what these stereotypes are you're kind of picking up that you know, these are um, you know popular derogative tropes and you think yeah, well that's clearly yeah. what they're doing yeah. so they um, they've got various different caricatures around the set as well yeah, and we'll probably come on to this in the analysis a bit more, but what what they represent is the is the the archetype of the um, American cultural view of the African American in both Hollywood um, kind of culture, but and also in um, kind of turn of the nineteenth and twentieth century views on the role that the African American plays in the context of white culture as well. So it's, it's a, it's, it's, it is, it does not hide away from, from the incendiary nature of the, of what's being put on screen. It is deliberately confrontational in that regard. And we should actually mention in terms of the, the way the show was produced is that, um, Delacroix has a, an assistant, um, played by Yada Pinkett Smith, uh, Sloane Hopkins, um, who, again, his, she was also the idea of thought of putting um, Man Ray on the screen, it, but yeah. not in blackface. She just thought she should make him a star um, because they were looking for something fresh. But she is now as involved <coughs> as Delacroix in putting this on. She's doing the research on how to get authentic blackface. She's coaching yeah. Uh, yeah. Man Ray and um, and Womack on you know what actually blackface means because actually they they were they're actually a bit thrown by what they have to do. But being they go with it, but they they're being, they're being, being, thrown by it. But they, yeah. I think, I think what you see in the film is that Man Ray is more accepting of it as an opportunity for stardom. Yeah, because they're on the street and they're more they, reticent. Yeah, they're on the street and they want to be famous um, and they want yeah. money, so they, that's why they're doing it. And they, they, even when they show what they have to do, I think Will Max's response is, "We're going to need a lot more money than this." Um, yeah, exactly. So, so it, it does begin like that, but they, they're not. I don't think they're as aware of the entire back culture of blackface but Sloan is, is there to, to kind of yeah. open their eyes to that as well but even so they know initially something is not right about what they're being asked to do yeah now now perhaps in a in a in a satire it, it's it's not surprising that when the show does air it becomes a huge cultural phenomenon and a huge hit um, it is embraced by both black and white audiences um, from a position of utter shock to a kind of slow acceptance and then explosive embrace of the nature and statements that are being made within the actual program itself. And there is a lot of use of the quote unquote N word in the particular show and the process of what that means. Um, so there's a lot of conversation, some quite caustic, but nevertheless humorous conversations between Delacroix and Dunwitty about the use of the word. Um, there are some absolutely shocking um, kind of compare 
processes that go through into the show itself where there are audience members which are all dressed up in blackface both black and white audience members hispanic members um who are describing themselves as um the colloquial n-word as it were and that the pride that they have in that um so it becomes it, it gets out of control of it really and i suppose to, to delacroix's horror there's a, a process whereby not only is it successful but it is it is one of the most successful programs and it is becoming a cultural phenomenon. It thrusts Man Ray and Womack into the limelight. It thrusts Delacroix into an uncomfortable position of being both lauded by, I guess, the white establishment in terms of the promotion of this particular program. There's lots of scenes of him winning awards, award ceremonies and, and you know, acting in an affectatious way uh, in terms of kind of like um, black culture, but also, you know, being within this kind of white establishment process. It affects Sloan Delacroix's assistant in terms of her immediate acceptance of the satire that Delacroix is trying to establish and then the kind of slow realisation that she is part of this kind of ugly horrible grotesquery yeah. um, that, that, that they both come to realise. And it also impacts on Man Ray's ever-increasing ego in being the main star of the film, despite being dressed up in this clownish blackface with extraordinarily red lips in um, kind of homeless-type outfits, tap dancing on an Alabama um, uh, kind of plantation as well. So this whole thing becomes more and more grotesque as the program becomes more and more successful. Although that, that then leads to Delacroix's sort of shift, whereby he's now starting to imagine the fame and mm. fortune that will come with this. He, he sort of daydreams yeah. about being given Emmys and being accepted <coughs> into, yeah. uh, into into Hollywood. There's there's one moment, I'm not sure this was referencing, where he basically uh, is given an Emmy and then, then breaks down. He's presented by Matthew Modine. That's right, he, yeah. Even though he doesn't quite know who Matthew Modine is, he's confusing with someone else, he then gives him the Emmy um, <laughs> because he thinks he deserves it more. I don't yeah. know if this is referencing the moment when I think it yes, is. Yes, it is. Ving yeah, Rames. It's, it's Ving Rames and Jack Lemon. Yeah, he gave Jack Lemon yeah. the award. Uh, yeah. And he's saying that's how you get to, that's how sort of a black man is accepted in Hollywood. He becomes, he's humbled himself and he's, and now, yeah. now they love him and everything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a moment when yeah, Ving Rames was given uh, an Emmy, burst into tears and gave it to Jack Lemon, who um, was utterly um, bewildered by what was happening. Um, it's totally caustic, but yeah, yeah. absolutely. I suppose, you know, and again, we'll get onto this in the analysis. Yeah. It holds no bars yeah. and it, it, it takes pops at everyone, yeah. black and white, actually. And it's it's an interesting concept in that context yeah. as well. So, yeah, so Delacroix is imagining the fame of fortune um, and, and almost in a, almost a downward spiral. He's, he's initially given, oh, they, they um, I think uh, Sloan gives him, um, again, a piece of memorabilia from the time, which, which is, again, um, yeah. a sort of <clears throat> blackface doll that, that is a money bank. Um, but then he starts collecting more and more, and by the end of it, his his entire office is just a, a, a jumble sale of, of his hideously racist stuff, of posters and statues and, and toys and things. Um, and and yeah, it ends up. Well, we'll come to where, where it ends up in his office. But yeah, so the, this is so that he's slight, slightly losing his mind. Uh, we will say at one point um, when he's about when he's launching this, he goes to see his father. Um, yeah, who, it's it's like implied before. Yes, a kind of famous stand-up comedian. Yeah, so it's 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 it, um it begins you know like it's implied before we actually see him that his you know, his father thinks down on his luck or something like that. He goes to see him, but his father actually is performing in a nightclub. Um, yeah. and and performing very well. You know, the, the crowd really likes him, and it's funny. And very how, funny. Oh. And very funny, and but it's funny that he's 
he's also you know performing with racially charged stand-up comedy but it's yeah. and but it's very much set as a contrast to what Delacroix has just put on stage in terms of the um, the, the Mantan show yeah it is it is the um it's called Junebug isn't he so his yeah. dad's called Junebug and, and the Junebug the Junebug uh, stand-up comedy routine is again a no holds barred it's it's um it's racially driven racially um kind of um explosive in many ways but as 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 you say it is probably uh an it's a, it's an it's an angry expression rather than a satirical expression but i think it was also uh, because it was performed for black people by black people it, it's yeah, almost the one yeah. thing the film doesn't pass judgment on because you, you can kind of tell by the way it's shot it's just shot yeah. as a as a, a show of what kind of is acceptable comedy that, that plays on race rather than what delacroix is doing which is unacceptable yeah, it's, it's one of the few scenes in the film which I think doesn't pass judgment, actually, yeah, yeah. in a particular way. And, and I suppose by doing that, it's a judgment in itself. It's very pointed the way that it does yeah. that. Um, there's a, as well as all this going on, there is a, a side um, plot, side story happening about a militant rap group called the Mau Maus, yeah. um, which is led by um, a kind of famous uh, late 90s, early 2000s rapper called Most Def, um, who um, is uh, Sloan's um, brother called Julius. And the Mau Maus are uh, an underground kind of gangster rap group who have pretensions to... Uh, fame and fortune by propagating and promoting the kind of gangster rap type image and um, kind of sound, as it were, despite the fact that they actually do um, audition for the the house group on the um, the New Millennium Minstrel Show, which are called the Alabama Porch Monkeys in the end, who are actually played by The Roots, uh, another very famous hip hop group um, uh, as well. And so, despite actually auditioning for what they what they consider to be an affront to uh, American, African American culture, they actually um, they do that anyway. Um, and the Mau Maus are increasingly an angry and militant kind of side um, side plot, I suppose. Um, and they plot to kidnap Man Ray as a point of um, confrontation, I guess, really, and a point of kind of political statement about the um, the, the offensiveness and the kind of racial undertones of the, the program itself. And they actually do that. And part of the part of the kind of the denouement of the film is actually that um, they uh, they um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They were publicly televised his execution. That's it. They tele- they, yeah, they televise his execution. So they, they kidnap Man Ray, they televise his execution. Um, and they, 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 they also execute him by, first they make him do his dance by shooting at his feet, almost in that mm. kind of cowboy way. And then they actually kill him. You, you wonder where it's going, because you don't know quite where this, this film never quite... You, you wonder where it's going, and uh, you don't expect them to do it either. No, because um, they, they, they they've, they've been quite comical up to this point. Again, they've got one of their member um, who was... Uh, Piers White calls himself 160 black. 160 black, yeah. Because is, um, but again, so in, in the um, again the the, the affectations they use are often just played for comedy. They they seem to be quite oh, yeah. buffoonish until that moment when they kidnap Man Ray and yeah. again fire his feet and then actually kill him. It's it's quite yeah. a shocker. So Man Ray is killed, um, and immediately after that happens, the Mau Maus leave their their hideout and are ambushed by the police and yes. literally all just gun down 
before, before words are spoken, with the exception of one sixteenth black, who again yeah. in, in in the in the it's it's complete darkness, is blinding lights, but he's the one the one white man in the group doesn't get killed by the police, yeah. and they, he's just being handcuffed, and he's outraged at this. He sort of as they haul him off, he's shouting, "I'm black too! You should have killed me!" Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of prescient in terms of the film is was made before all the kind of um, Black Lives Matter yeah. type movement, but um, this is film was ahead of a lot of things. Um, yeah, 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 very much so. Because also, I was, I was thinking the televised murder. I mean, was that a thing? Because obviously now with them following ISIS and everything, that's you know in the in the social social language. But I don't recall it being a thing in 2000. Where no, there there were a couple of instances in America in the 1970s where um, I think a a lady called Christine Lambach um, committed suicide live on TV. She shot herself in the head. And there was another instance where a a local mayor did it at a news conference as well. But they were self-inflicted. I'm not saying. That makes it right or wrong. But no, but what I'm thinking that that idea of a terrorist group with a guy in a chair and a camera on him. That... Yeah, 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 unusual. Although um, one of the films that um, bamboozled, I wouldn't say owes a debt to, but certainly references quite a lot, is, is the film Network. Oh yes, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and of course, Network has a very similar type of um, kind of approach where where um, Peter Finch's character is 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 murdered, uh, and actually there's. One of the interesting things about the, the correlations between Network and Bamboozled as well is that you've got the Black Panther movement yeah. in Network as the kind of almost the bumbling um, kind of uh, Mau Mau style um, kind of reactionary group that, that, that goes ahead and does some, some of that kind of executionary work as well. So there are links to that. We might come come to that in, in, yeah. in the kind of like the analysis process. But also, a very, 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 very overt homage is played to it because there were the, the scenes when they're, they're shouting, um, go, go to your windows and shout out, yeah. that's that's a direct lift from network. So well, there's, direct, no, yeah, yeah, there's no hiding yeah. from that. Uh, yeah. Does, yeah. yeah, they, they, they slightly um, bastardise the, the language a little bit yeah. by, 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 by dropping in various... Um, Various racial expletives, yeah. um, but it's it's a yeah. It's, it, I, I wouldn't call it a homage. It, it's 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 a direct reference, in fact, actually. Um, and, and I think that's del- was obviously deliberate. Yeah. Uh, by this time, Womack has, has quit the, the television program because he's uncomfortable with the process. He's angry at the ego that Man Ray has developed, and um, he's decided that it's not for him anymore. Um, Delacroix has kind of like he's lost himself in his in his own sense of importance and his own sense of kind of. Um, uh, the realization that what perhaps he has done is is um, despicable and has kind of like you know um, been an, an, I wouldn't say he's been un, unwittingly involved in it, but his intention at the start has been totally kind of banjaxed and is is a different output to what he expected and he's bought into that, and so he 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 is he is on the edge as it were, um, probably summed up by a conversation he has with his mum on the phone. And at the end of the conversation, his mum says, I'm disappointed in you, Delacroix, or Pierre, actually, she says. And that is maybe one of those kind of principles. The, the, the film ends after Man Ray has been executed by a kind of um, a public tele- televised account of it. Is, um, yeah, his, mum was so, his mum was so nice to that point. That it was a real, it was a real body blow. She's like, oh, how are you? Are you looking after yourself? I was surprised. And then I'm really disappointed in you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so um, uh, Delacroix in his office and um, Hopkins arrives. Um, I was uh, sorry, just to uh, put that into context. Yeah, um, Delacroix sort of snaps awake from a dream, and he's in blackface too. And I wondered, is yeah, this a dream sequence? Or apparently, mm-hmm. no, he, he actually has put this no, up he, because he has blacked up. Yeah, which which yeah. and because he's, he's he's very much losing mind. He thinks his ah. uh, kind of the clockwork toys in his room are have a life of their own, and goes on a bit of a rampage, smashing them up as well. So he's yeah. he's this is his moment, and that, that moment is when Sloane comes in, having both lost. Man Ray, whom she was 
I think she was in a relationship with, or certainly yeah, family, family in a relationship with, yeah, and also her brother. So um, yeah, it's a double blow for her. Yes, of course, because, yeah, Julius is the lead of Mau Mouse, yeah. yeah. So she comes in and she shows him a tape or demands that he plays a tape that he's that she has given him, which is a a, a, a montage of um, kind of early 20th century clips from films um, which have, um, you know, kind of like the, the, as you might expect, um, racially, racially stereotypical and um, archetypal views of black characters in it, and the impact of minstrel style and type programs, um, right up until actually, what, what what I think is quite powerful is there's a clip of a film. I don't know the name of the film with um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, um, and this I think was been made in the forties. Where Ginger Rogers is, uh, um, she's 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 inverted commas got to black up uh, to perform, and she said, you know, I feel I felt so beautiful before this, and now I've got to put this on and go out there, and I feel so ugly. And Fred Astaire's yeah. like, well, it's only for a little bit of time, and you kind of think to yourself, blimey, okay, you know, this is the, this is Hollywood royalty in that regard, and um, Spike Lee is is showing it for what it is in that regard. And this wasn't, you know, we're not talking 1910. No. We're talking 1940s, early 50s in many instances. Well, apparently as well. there was a clip of Bugs Bunny in blackface that one of us refused them to use. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. I did not know that. And, um, it, Which, it, having so seen some she, Bugs Bunny cartoons, it wouldn't surprise me. There's a, there's a Bugs Bunny no, yeah, fight for the Japanese. is just awful. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So the film concludes effectively with uh, Sloan shooting um, Delacroix. Yeah. Um, and um, she kind of le- leaves the building, and then there's a, a, a quite a long montage of this kind of, you know, um, demeaning clips of African American characters yeah, from Hollywood films. It's heavy going that because it does it doesn't let up. It doesn't let up, and you're right. It goes. It, it, I think it's probably it's between five and ten minutes long, um, and it's a long, long sequence, and it's overlaid with uh, what is quite somber music that has been going through the film at various instances, particularly when um, Man Ray and Womack are putting on their blackface makeup. This particular kind of motif, this particular music comes in. Um, and the, the film ends on that on that note. Um, rather than an angry note, it ends on a sombre note, I think. Um, and that is the film. That's Bamboozled. That's Bamboozled. It is. I was a little bit bamboozled. <laughs> it was quick, but I think again the reason why we can we can discuss why it was why it's so easy to to summarise the plot and come in the analysis. But again, it's it's there's there's little I guess what you'd call plot. There. There's a lot of kind of ideas it's and ideas. Vision. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. film of ideas as much as it is about the story. The story you can rattle through as we have done fairly efficiently. But yes, I think the, the analysis we all really get our teeth into. So join us after the jingle. <laughs> Welcome back, dear listener. Here we are in um, the analysis phase of uh, Weekend at Crombies. Uh, we've done this synopsis. Quick time, I think. Indeed. Um, Very efficient. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, and so we're, we're into the analysis. Um, so to begin the analysis, as we always do, I would <laughs> yeah. like to, uh, to invite James to tell us why you chose Bamboozled for us to look at. Um, yes. Bamboozled has been on my uh, to watch list for some time um, I hadn't really considered it as a film for Weekend at Crombies I'm not really sure why perhaps 
perhaps because I wanted to watch it and absorb it myself rather than have the opportunity to discuss it because I wasn't sure that I would be able to very easily construct my thoughts of what the film was. I don't really know why, but I thought it was quite, it might be quite a challenging film to kind of review. But then I thought actually that's exactly the reason why Weekend at Commas exists in many ways to, to discuss those kind of contexts and processes and, and, and what those films mean. Um, Bamboozled is a film directed by Spike Lee. And I have to say that I, although I have seen a number of Spike Lee films, have liked some and like not liked some as well. I think I have a bit of a, a cultural hole when it comes to Spike Lee. Um, it, you know, I've, I'm, I'm aware of some of his classics, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, etc. But I can't say necessarily, I mean, I've not seen them. Um, I've seen some of his newer stuff and a fairly kind of mixed, mixed feelings about them. Um, but Bamboozled came out at the turn of the century when I was studying um, um, philosophy at Goldsmiths College in London. And um, there were a lot of posters about the place when Bamboozled came out. And the poster is extraordinary. Um, and it's stuck in the mind a little bit. The, the poster is effectively of an incredibly offensive caricature of a small black African woman, a uh, girl, I should say, eating a watermelon. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's stuck in the mind, as it probably should. On that basis, given the fact that Spike Lee is a, a very well-known film director and that Bamboozled is one of his least successful, certainly in terms of financial yeah. and box office um, hits. I thought, actually, Bamboozled is probably a really good film to discuss. It also followed on from Set It Off, which admittedly is a completely different film. Sparked in my mind that Jada Pinkett Smith was in Bamboozled as well. Yes, so I thought, actually, our first yeah, connection. I'm it's our first, well, there are two connections between Set It Off and Bamboozled. Um, and it's Thomas Jefferson Bird, who plays, um, oh, what's the guy's name in um, Bamboozled? He plays Honeycutt in Bamboozled. So he's the compare of okay. the show. And in Set It Off, he plays the owner of the cleaning company. Oh, yes, of course. Is it Luther? Yeah, whose name is Sketch. Luther. Luther, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. of course. No, I'm wondering, is this the first time we've jumped a weekend at Crombie's from one actor to another? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah, first time. Yeah, it's the first time we've done that, yeah, it, it is. Um, Very interesting. So but you get reason... to, yeah, and, and you say that it, was, it wasn't a success. This was massively a huge financial failure, wasn't it? And uh, <laughs> again, I think it's found, it's found some critical heft subsequently because it is sprightly yeah, and, it, think... and because of its subject. It's a film that is difficult to just brush aside as in it just didn't work and it wasn't very successful because yeah. we're, we're looking at it now and I think it, people will still discuss it now. I think there was a, again, there was an anniversary of it coming out and it was, it was, yeah. it was killed. I mean, I, I, you're right. But I think unlike other Weekend at Crombus films that perhaps have had a, rev, a revisionist view, I still think Bamboozled is very hard to come by. Okay. And I think in, in Spike Lee's oeuvre um it's one of the least watched least well-known most controversial and perhaps most i mean uh, not, least revered almost and um you know I, I i think that's a shame in many ways because it's it's spikely at his angriest yeah. and it's spikely at his probably most vexed and Actually, maybe Spike Lee is it most creative as well in many ways. It's no holds barred. And Spike Lee, when he has total freedom, 
much like he has with Bamboozled, is a sight to behold. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the case with Bamboozled as well. So I, I, I think I can totally understand why it was a complete financial and box office failure. I totally get it. Um, it's basically criticising everything. It's angry at everything. And it's pointedly angry at the audiences that might watch it as well. Yeah. And I think at the turn of the century, in the year 2000, there wasn't a market for this kind of film. And for shame, there wasn't a market for this kind of film, actually, because it's this kind of film that I think has a lot of resonance now. But in 2000, nearly 20 years ago, just got lost by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, I can see why it wasn't, again... It's a hard film to market, and it's a hard film. It's an incredibly hard film to market. I think it was. I think it had a two-week cinema release before it was removed oh, and went straight to DVD. <laughs> Subsequently, it's had one DVD release, which was in 2002, which is the DVD that we both watched. Yeah. That's a 2002 DVD. A 2002 DVD. <laughs> Not had a release since then, and it's never talked about in the context of Spike Lee films. Yeah. And one of the things I think about with Spike Lee is that his most recent film, which was lauded by the um, by the American Film Academy as well, Black Klansman, yeah. is in many ways a jump-off point from Bamboozled because it delivers that kind of impact and that punch. And it's much... I think the reason why Black Klansman was much more successful and effective than Bamboozled was is because in the year 2018 and 19... With the kind of race riots in Charlottesville, the all uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, Black Klansmen had traction. Yeah. People, yeah. and I, I don't I don't mean to say that, that that Bamboozle didn't, but people were interested in the story of Black Klansmen, and they weren't interested in the story of Bamboozled. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um... Um, I think the other thing on that is that Bamboozled is a pointed criticism of television and film, and of course, television and film networks and the industry don't like the finger pointed at them no. and I think that's a big issue of why Bamboozle failed and a, a, a film like a, a Black Klansman succeeded because Black Klansman is about politics yeah. Bambo Bamboozle is about culture yeah on that then let's take as a jumping off point because one thing I did notice is that again it's hard to pick where, where he's doing the target so he's, he's targeting yeah. everybody but um, there was a lot made of again the very early stuff um, <coughs> you know the sort of the pre pre second world war up to yeah. when things were shot in color of all the blackface yeah. um again there's lots of montages and, and clips like that there's there's only passing reference to subsequent things almost like you know the um when black actors started to come into the mainstream and, and have things like the cosby show or have things like the jeffersons yeah. they're quickly referenced but you don't quite know how spike lee feels about them and maybe that's a hard one to pick too because even though it's a kind of sanitized view yeah it's the first time people you know and black families were shown on tv and not in a you know, wholesome stereotyped and negative light and also it's in, and not how for example in 2000 you still you had actors you know who would who were you know top of the line stars you had you know eddie murphy would have been the yeah. 80s um yeah. you had will smith um you had um who's the actor in blade um wesley snipes no. um, so the, 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 yes yeah, no. these these were above the line you know movie yeah. stars and that's not referenced it is it is like and maybe this is where they want you to make your own associations, but he's showing us all the, the very worst at the very beginning and, yeah. nothing, and not much commentary f as we get further closer to the present day. Well, um, the, yeah, I don't disagree with you. The only, the only counterpoint to that, I would say, is that the conversation that Dunwitty has with Delacroix relatively early on does explicitly reference the fact that there are Cosby-type programs yeah. that are common where basically American, African-American characters are presented as safe 
and present it as comedic, I guess, in, yeah. in those ways. And there are there are some there are some snippets. So uh, they're not really in the montage processes, but there are some snippets of some of those 70s and 80s television programs. When someone references them, it might do a quick um, kind of a quick edit yeah. to a, a, a clip from one of those programs from the 70s and 80s, and then cut quickly back to the film itself. Yeah. I think what Spike Lee does as well is that he actually references one of the films he's made. I mean, he references Malcolm X quite yeah. a lot in the film, but he references a clip from Malcolm X where um, Denzel Washington as Malcolm X says quite famous, the famous kind of quote from Malcolm X, which is, you've been hoodwinked, you've been had, you've been took, you've been led astray, run amok, you've been bamboozled, which yeah. is obviously yeah. the film comes from. And I think that the context of focusing primarily on some of the early 20th century figures and characterizations of black culture and black characters is because some of that later stuff is quite it's quite at the forefront of people's minds and i think that there's a lot of if you think about it trying to be satirical making a making a uh, an offensive program about a cosby style sitcom i don't think would have the the political impact yeah. that say making a minstrel program would yeah. in the context where the film presumes that the audience believe that minstrel um, minstrel programs and, and the concept of a minstrel itself is inherently racist. Yeah. I don't think that the audience considers a program like The Cosby Show as inherently racist. Yeah, I don't know that it is inherently racist, yeah. but it's certainly safe and it's certainly an archetype. Yeah. So I think I think Spike has to go down that earlier route yeah. for the impact. Yeah, and I was thinking about again to come to the actual minstrel show. It's difficult to to pick holes because there, there are there are things in the plot, and I can come to things that you know, in a conventional plot, I would I would have issue with. Um, mm. for, uh, for example, um, the um, the show that that Man Ray and and Womack put on is very slick. I mean, they, they, I mean these these are two street performers, um, and yeah. they, they 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 block the scene like professional yeah. actors, like people have been doing yeah, on do. stage all their lives. They you know they, they, the, the the routines they're performing are quite clearly you know um, musical routines of the um, early 20th century, and they are beat perfect. They are they're literally translating them. They're not they're not stumbling over the words. They're not acting like people who had their first break in TV are. They are doing it because the two actors are doing it very well, um, and I think that's obviously deliberate. So it's, it's, it takes a step aside yeah. from reality because if, in reality, if there was a real thing that happened, then probably you'd have Womack and Man Ray stumbling over their lines a bit, not being quite as slick. But I think Spike Lee wants to show it as exactly, you know, as, as close to the replication of it as he can get there. And they do, they, 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 yeah. you know, it focuses a long time on these these minstrel routines in the show within a show, and it and they are, you know, they are beat perfect in terms of when the laughs come, when the beats come, when the gags come. They, you know, they are they are good <coughs> in this show. Um, and that's something that you'd say, well, if it was real, it would happen. But I think you know, there are lots of things like this that Spike Lee wants us to, to show. And I guess another thing is, um, okay, so it's hard to jump, not jump all over the place here. But for example, the, 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 the reaction to the show is almost yeah. entirely from the perspective of, I guess, middle class white America. Whereas, yeah. you'd, again, there is a, there's a small scene of maybe like a dozen guys with placards saying it's racist, which I guess is yeah. their, their nod to the NAACP. Um, but you'd think about, you know, if this was now, they might have a huge upswell of like the far right, um, who's say this is either probably fantastic or you're stealing our racism, whatever. It doesn't address the, you know, the, the overt racism in America. It, it's, it's, it's kind of focused on the, again, the, the middle class the people who've watched the movie, like I say, it's attacking yeah. those who are watching it, which I think is another choice. It's not a sense of, you know, I'm not 
it, you know, he he missed that point. You, know, you, you you didn't paint with a broad enough brush. Yeah. Is the fact that he deliberately chose to direct in this book the people who would come and see a show and then think, oh, it's fun. I'll be in blackface then because I'm enjoying yes. it ironically. And yeah. and all of a sudden, and if you know, you can be on one side thinking, well, this is very ironic. I'm what an ironic person I am. And then you get to the show of you know the entire audience in blackface and it looks horrific. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. There's something about there's something about the way that it it, it taps into that kind of bourgeois white America that effectively legitimizes the the blackface and it's it's because of the legitimization of the blackface by that group by that caustic group in america that allows that kind of racial and racist sentiment to flourish and become the norm yeah so in many ways it's kind of like that overton window style of politics whereby you say something enough people think it it becomes the norm yeah. and it's that kind of approach which i think is very very strongly presented notwithstanding the fact that in the in the film there is a significant number of black audience members also in blackface as yeah. well yeah which which again you know uh, uh, you, you get to the point in the film because it's so layered in its pointed criticism you're not quite sure and maybe this is a maybe this is one of the criticisms of the film itself is that you're not quite sure what all the time spike lee is rallying against so there's there's like the there's the there's the obvious and then there are five or six less obvious points that he might be rallying against and those five or six less obvious points there are so many ideas in the film that it's quite it can be quite hard to kind of pinpoint where you are at yeah. In the film itself, and I think the audience members, particularly when Honeycutt does that compare sequence, which I think is the most shocking sequence in the film. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's doing like when kind he, of a Jerry Springer you know, thing. He, when he's going into yeah, the he, yeah, it's like a Jerry Springer. Where he rallies the audience before the actual program starts, and he's doing a kind of like microphone interview with with um, white audience members in blackface, talking about how much they are uh, an N word, as it were, and how much they love being an n-word and then as it goes through the, the audience cheer and then you start to realize that the audience isn't a white audience it's a very diverse audience yeah. in its in its um, ethnic kind of makeup and they get to the the, the 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 black the black audience members as well and they're doing the same things so honeycutt has this um he has a statement at the end of that particular um uh uh, sequence where where you know he's just and again using the kind of quotation marks the n word is a beautiful fan, and um, it's uh, I, I found that a very well you know I don't know whether I have the right to be shocked or not but I found it very uncomfortable yeah. um, and, and and you know it was very successfully making me uncomfortable as well <laughs> yes you know you know it very, I was squirming I was squirming and I was feeling I was feeling uncomfortable in that process but I tell you why I tell you why and there, there's two reasons why I was feeling uncomfortable. I apologise that I'm banging on a little bit. There's no, no. two reasons why I was comfortable. The first reason is because it is fundamentally a shocking sequence. Secondly, the reason why I was, I was very uncomfortable was because it was funny. And the problem I have, it's not the problem I have, in many ways it's the success of the film is that I think the film's funny. Yeah. There are lots of laugh out loud moments in it. You're both laughing out loud at the exasperation of a character like Thomas Dunwitty. Absolutely. But you're also laughing. There's a nervous laughter in me, which is like, oh, my God, this is too much almost. The sequence toward the end of the film where Thomas Dunwitty 
blacks up for about 20 minutes and runs around in an anxious way as Man Ray decides that he's not going to do the, the, the Mantan show anymore and goes out and does his tap, does his tap dance routine in kind of street clothes, as it were. Yeah. And Thomas Dunwich is literally running around the studio yeah. in blackface. He's in, he's in his normal corporate suit and tie, his normal haircut, he's just black as face up. And, you know, it's, a, it's absurdly funny, but it's yeah. also incredibly offensive. What I find interesting, actually, because we'll come to that point. There's the point before Man Ray is kidnapped um, when he, when he, yeah, he, because uh, Will Mack has already left the show now. They've argued and he's been pushed off. Man Ray has finally had, has had enough too, and he comes on just in his normal clothes without blackface and delivers a short speech saying he's sick of this as well. And, the, and yes. then he starts dancing, just starts doing his dance, and then yeah. then Witty gets the, the guards to haul him out and throw him away. Um, and it's funny enough that yeah, then Witty is outraged by it, and obviously the security yeah. guards are hauling him off, but the audience aren't. Aren't reacting. They're not booing, saying we don't want to see this. Their audience are, are completely dumbfounded too. And it's interesting. They're shocked. They're, they're not sort of saying we. Want, they're not like cheering. We no. want to see the blackface. They they don't know what to do either because they were they were taking their cues from the audiences. And almost that's one of the things in the show is um, the fact that Delacroix is, is the kind of the producer of the show. The whole studio thing is how can it be racist? A black man invented it. Um, and they yeah, and, and, yeah. and that's sort of when. When Man Ray comes out and sort of revokes his his uh, permission for them to find it funny, the audience I don't want to they don't they don't laugh they don't boo they can't do anything, um, which is it's a it's it's interesting that well they're that, bamboozled aren't they? they're bamboozled exactly yeah. <laughs> true yeah yeah that's what it is though isn't it yeah they're totally bamboozled yeah because it was interesting you wonder what their reaction would be if you know, if, if they're expecting one thing they're given another but they don't know what to do with that it's not like mm. they mm. they felt they had a right to um to mantan and sleeping to come out and entertain them. <laughs> If they didn't do it, and um, yeah, so it's a strange one. Um, and and that 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 kind of sequence is um, is a quite a powerful um, sequence in the film, and obviously saying it's both shocking and it's, there are almost there are also quite humorous aspects to it as well. Um, it, that that's fairly common <coughs> throughout the film itself. Um, so you, know, you, can, you can you can probably you know pause the film at a, a random moment in its two hours ten minutes running time, and find a sequence which is both shocking and and humorously driven as well. So you know it, there's the 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 quote the quotation that you um, did at the start of the podcast Hugh about me me myself and moi yeah. um, it is both a play on the kind of De La Soul type, me, myself and I type, type of kind of like hip hop rhetoric in that regard. But it's also an interesting one because it's at a point at which there's a, you know, a typical American um, writing studio where there's a room full of um, what are uh, white middle class, um, you know, university educated screen and script writers and a room full of um, a long table with at least 20 to 25 people at least around the top of it yeah effectively and they are all they are all espousing their own um, i suppose their own kind of sh- streetness is the wrong word but credentials yeah 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 they're espousing their credentials in being able to write a program like like the new millennium minstrel show and of course you know it, 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 Delacroix is and uh, Sloan who are also meeting are you know they are patronizing them they are you know they, they are accept, you know they're, they're dealing with that situation I guess really but again it's you it's one of those films where it's very on the nose and you know it's you know what's coming in that particular sequence and it's embarrassing to watch but it's also funny yeah because, because um, yeah, you have someone saying oh I'm from Iowa and my first uh, exposure people with of that of that of that of that of that <laughs> he's, he's, he's desperate not to just say I'm yeah he's desperate he doesn't want to say black does yeah. he? He, has to, he gets really nervous. yeah exactly it's right. so and you know you can 
in, in some respects, it, it, you can you see that in in real life as well, where it, um, the kind of like the, the kind of liberal establishment are so keen to to be liberal and not seem to be in any way naive or or racist or ignorant in in, in some ways that, that they they can't get over they can't get over that they are and that's okay I guess in some ways oh was this also the point when they're talking about why there were no black writers in the room and they're like saying well maybe they didn't want to or maybe maybe they're just not qualified to yeah maybe they're all just these reasons why, yeah. Yeah, why, they're, why they're the only faces in the yeah, room yeah exactly so I mean that's quite it's pointed it's it's accurate it's funny and it's also uncomfortable right yeah yeah and throughout that pro throughout the film there's there's you know numerous examples of that there's a scene where Sorry. there's a scene where um Dunwitty calls in the Ooh, skills of just about uh, to mention the scene yeah yeah I can't remember what she's called she's like a cultural she's a, she's a PR person she's a PR, she's a what, she's a PR expert yeah 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 she's, yeah she's a PR ex, uh, expert and she's she's basically saying you know like there's been a lot of backlash um, against the the the, the, the um, minstrel show, and what we want to do is get our kind of our argument straight. And it's that thing again, you know, it's written by a, a black man, so how can it be racist? Well, I'll, I'll and, pick on this you know, point. This is this one point where I felt actually um, might, might come from one of the flaws of the film was was the character of Delacroix himself, because I guess this this is the lady, and she's she's basically espousing. Well, so not really anything that Dunwitty or the wives from haven't done already. You know, she's just yeah. saying things like, "Oh, we gotta have you know more black faces in the cast and crew, la yeah. la la. Let us get ahead of this kind of stuff." You know, I know, I know what um what young um, black urban people want to hear. Um, mm. and but Delacroix gets very very aggressive and and shuts her down really really quickly yeah. and yeah. almost has an argument. And that seemed very out of character for what Delacroix was because previously he'd either been just kind of swallowing what he, what he felt about people yeah. or just scheming. And he's in the middle of his scheme now. You know, it's 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 spinning out of control. But it's it's having an impact certainly, and he's actually getting you know noticed around the office. So it it's and I think so that that to me felt like a bit of a, a misstep in terms of the aggression he throws at her because it seemed like she was being singled out to receive all his aggression. Maybe he just snapped at that point. But yeah. that for me felt like I think one of the the weaknesses in the film is that it's you know Delacroix is your your central character all the way through, and I don't think actually Damon Wayans the actor. Yeah. either portrays it well enough or the character is written well enough to yeah. do that I personally felt kind of the stories of, of Man Ray and Womack were much stronger going through yeah. that and, and quite... Sloan and Julius as well yeah, actually yeah so yeah. I, I think it was, it was part of the way it was acted I don't think it yeah. was terribly it was more of an affectation um, than it was a character well, I, th I think I think Wayne's affectation as you say is one of the issues with it because it's it's almost as though he has, I don't know whether he's been directed to do this or whether it's its a choice that he's uh, made himself in terms of the actual kind of character, but he has deliberately made the the character overtly and extremely different to the character, yeah, in terms of his mannerisms, to the caricature of the African-American male that is presented in the kind of bamboozled, um, kind of film iconography, as it were, I guess, in many ways. His, 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 his original name was Peerless Dauphin, and he's changed it to yeah. Pierre Delacroix. So he's, oh, yeah. he's, he's tried to reinvent himself again away from his kind of yeah. father's more rough-edged kind of showbiz element. Because yeah. he's, he's kind of he's a showbiz kid. You know, his, his, his dad was clearly successful enough in, in Hollywood to put him mm. through Harvard. Um, so he's clearly... Um, you know, he's 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 been through the whole showbiz stuff, but he moved away from that and tried to be again, essentially a, a yuppie um, executive of TV shows on his own terms. Yeah. 
yeah but but because he's he's because the character is an affectation within an affectation yeah it is. I, I didn't get that enough of that from from the actor doing yeah. it I, I think I think I agree with you quite strongly there. Now I did I did find myself I, I wouldn't say I warmed to him. I don't think he's the character that you warm to. I don't think you're supposed to warm to him. Yeah. But I got used to the affectation. Yeah. And there were some instances and some scenes where I thought the affectation worked very well. So for example, the scene with the scriptwriters is actually very good. Yes. And I, that works well. And there are some other scenes. The scenes at, at the award ceremonies when he's he's I think that works well as well in that context because he's kind of like he's, he's suddenly in the white establishment and he's he's been playing up the white establishment his career in, in that way so I think that works quite well but I think overall his is his it's not that it's a problematic character but it, it's almost necessary his character is, is necessarily used to provide the hook that the ideas fall off rather than having any real importance, I guess, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas, whereas someone like Sloan, or the Jacob Pinkett Smith character, has a lot more kind of humanity and emotional heft to her, because she's, she's more of a real character. She's more of a real person, I guess, in that regard. Whereas Delacroix, isn't, he's, a, he's an archetype. Yeah, and it was, because of that, it was kind of hard to get what he wanted. So first he wanted to kind of throw a hand grenade into into his career, so he'd get... So he did, it was more like the producers, create something that's so obnoxiously bad, <clears throat> he yeah. gets he gets fired, but it turns out to be so bad it's it's insanely popular. Yeah. And yeah. then he starts to ride off the success, and then you don't it quite changed. know where he's going. Yeah. He, he's, yeah. he's, he's that instigate, he's the reason why any of this comes about, but you don't feel his character's driving it, it's more just there... And again, he, it begins with him. It ends with his death. It's, it's you know, he's the entire arc of the, of the show. But again, the the to look at, step back and look at the film as a whole, <clears throat> it did feel like almost a documentary with dramatic linking scenes. It, like it was yeah. like that Michael Moreism where they, again, when he because yeah. he kept flashing up, you know, lots and lots of imagery when they refer to things. Because um, for example, there's a moment when they kind of have to nod to the fact that you know, these very early um, African American actors who had to do the blackface were talented performers, but this is the only yeah. way they could get on show. So Sloane is the character who puts who put those words in her mouth to say that, and then they flash yes. to the person doing that kind of stuff. And that is yes. almost again what Spike Lee wants us to know is that yes, they were doing these these racist stereotypes, but we wouldn't even know about them if they didn't if they didn't have to count out and do that in the first place. Yeah. But, but, it, but, it, but it's that, it's that yeah. kind of stuff. There's lots of, of, of clips and scenes and, and you're being educated and being challenged in a documentary way and then they link it with the, this fairly, you know, not a, not a rip-off, but a, um, the same plot of either the producers or network where, you know, something's yeah. so outrageous it, it then becomes a success. Yeah. Because if, if it was exactly. just... If it was I, just think, a... I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a kind of lack of coherence in the... the mo- in, I can't pinpoint the moment in which Delacroix goes from some so from a, a situation where he wants to make the most offensive program that he can to get fired, yeah. as in the producers, I guess, yeah. to 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 the point at which he wants to make a, a satirical um, television program, which would which would pro, which would provide the American masses with an understanding of the historico political context yeah. of the process. A la network. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, I don't know. I, it, it, there's a point in the film where it changes, and it's there's a lack of clarity in that. Yeah, because he's he's always sort of trying to seem like he knows what he's doing, but clearly at some yeah. points his his game plan has to change because things happen that he doesn't expect. But you yeah. you don't know at that point when when he does change or what he's when he what he is thinking. I think that's that's a, a letdown of the film. <laughs> I'd also like to, even yeah. though it, even though it was you know it's a film that has to get where it has to get and obviously yeah. there, there are you can pick plot holes in it because it, it just needs to go places but i would have probably i would have liked to have seen more of how it became a hit and and that kind of stuff because 
it, it just does. You know, the first thing the network hear it, yeah. and 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 Dunwoody loves it immediately, and the, and the executives up top love it immediately, and then the public love it immediately. And I would like to have seen almost Dunwoody being talked into it, because if someone says let's do a minstrel show, um, you th- you think the first response, even from someone as as guileless and crass as Dunwoody, would be no, that's racist. Then he'd need you know Delacroix to talk and say no, it's not racist. If if I'm doing it, I'm subverting it. And Dunwoody yeah. thinks oh yes, I, that, but there's no that. Dunwoody just goes that's brilliant, I love it. Yeah, but but I'm not sure I agree with you. I, I, I think that uh, but Dunwitty's an idiot, um, and and he he is he is I suppose f- f- thinking about it. Yeah, who am I? Who am I to think of something from Spike Lee's perspective? Yeah. But if I am allowed to think of something from Spike Lee's perspective, I would argue that the the point of the film that he is trying to put across isn't that. It's not that argument about whether something is racist or isn't racist, and therefore we move on to that particular process. It's to effectively say this is what it is. We'll get to the point of which the film is effectively dealing with, which is you're all racist, <laughs> and, and and that's what it's trying to do. So Dunwitty, Dunwitty as a character doesn't need to have that um, Damascene moment. No, he doesn't need to have it because that's not the point of the film. What he needs to have is an, an, an untrammeled conviction that what he thinks is popular is popular. Yeah. That's what he needs to have. Yeah. Um, in the same way that what Julius needs to have is this untrammeled conviction that his his gangster rap iconoclastic mannerisms is what black culture is. Yeah. That's what he has to have. There's no debate. Because yeah. the film isn't really about debate. That Really, the film is a pointed criticism. It's a polemic. On that subject, actually, there was there was one point when again the, the show is now going national and everything, and we we see the show as we, as the audience would see it, and it starts off with a and, and now a brief word from our sponsors, and it yeah. cuts to two adverts, <laughs> and I honestly couldn't tell if this was a satirical thing of the show within a show, as in they did this, or whether they <laughs> you're still with us. Yes, I'm sorry. This is another example of a, a sequence in the film which is both profoundly uncomfortable and incredibly funny. Yeah. The first, the first, it's it's um. So yeah, so they, we go to commercials, and first it's for advertising. I think it's just beer called the bomb, um, and it's, it's there's lots of go-go dancers and rap artists, and it's it's portrayed as, as a really over-the-top beer commercial. I didn't know whether that was meant to be a commercial in the reality yeah. of the world we were watching, or whether that was the show, um, the minstrel yeah. show, lampooning these commercials in the most racist yes. way possible. And there's yeah, one for, for Tommy Hilfiger as well, afterwards, lampooning again the fact that the high street has is, is appropriated um, hip-hop culture to sell yeah. clothes at massively inflated prices. And, and, and in particular, Tommy Hilfiger, yes. who at the height <laughs> of the success in terms of his street popularity yeah. was recorded using the N-word. Yeah. Because yeah, so, you know, he's, he's not he's not called Hilfiger in the in, in the movie. <laughs> he's not called Hilfiger in it. Um, but it's because I couldn't quite tell if these were just these. I, I think it was meant to be these are commercials happening in the in the reality of the world. But they could have easily been they the new been, yeah, show skits yeah. as well. Because um, wasn't um, was it wasn't the, the compare in the in the bomb one? Was he the, was. Yes. Yeah. the compare who's in the advert. Yeah. So I think I think. I'm not sure that it matters, yeah. because either way it's still pointed, but I think that they were skits yeah. rather than adverts. But again, it could have been either way. Like I say, he does he does take target. Like I said, I mentioned earlier that um, the Dunwitty character 
again, could easily be Tarantino. And, and again, Spike Lee being ahead of the game, obviously he'd had his, his, his um, grudge matches with Tarantino. But in latter years, you know, especially in the wake of, say, Django, when Tarantino oh, was yeah. come on talk shows, he has sort of embarrassed himself quite a lot by suddenly, you know, being a, a middle-aged man dropping the affectation of a sort of a, a young hip-hop artist. And it's it, quite it, self-referential as well. One of the best um, lines in, in, in the film is, is spoken by Dunwitty when he's having an initial conversation with Delacroix about how Delacroix is effectively safe. He's making safe African-American programs. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I won't quote verbatim, but Dunwoody says, you know, I, I grew up around black people my whole life. I mean, if the truth be told, I probably know N words better than you and don't go getting offended by my use of the quote unquote N word. I have a black wife and two biracial kids. So I have the right and give a damn what that prick Spike Lee says, yes. Tarantino was right. The <laughs> N-word is just a word. If old dirty bastard can use it every other word, why can't I? It's true. That's a very, that's a very, very, very clever, clever um, yes. piece of script writing. Although it is a bit of a straw man, given, given your most obnoxious character <laughs> so, yeah, to, to, be, to be a fan of the person you hate and hate you. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. But, yeah, it's, um, it, but actually, by putting it in that, those terms, it is very hard to argue against. It is, it is, yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a fan of Tarantino as well, or, or, or I, I'm a fan of his films. I'm not so sure yeah. I'm a fan of his politics, yeah. if that makes sense. And then I think you could be, I think you can have both. You can have your cake and eat it. Separate the art from the artist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the formalism of the film as well. So the way and the technique of the film, because it is an interesting approach. And um, we spoke just before we record this about some of the um, I was a little bit nervous that this might go down the road of something like um, Phantom of the Paradise or Dancer in the Dark. I was slightly relieved that Hughes said that nothing could be as bad as Dancer in the Dark. So we we're at least we we're at least on safe ground there. But it does share a similarity with Dancer in the Dark in that the bulk of the film is on digital video. Oh yes, um, of course, yes, I, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I, 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 you know, and they and actually uh, Dancer in the Dark and Bamboozled were made in the same year, uh, year two thousand. So they 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 share they share probably an uh, one of the first examples of innovation in using digital video in a cinematic release in, in many regards. Now, Dr. Really like does it slightly differently in the sense that that is the kind of the, the, the driving force of the formalism of the film. In Bamboozled, it's it's done to affect a contrast, I think. So what, what it does quite well is by using what by um, using digital um, video, Spike Lee is, is able to use lots and lots of different camera angles and different edits to get very close up to characters' faces and physical kind of profiles, but also do some very quick jump cuts and crash cuts and so on and so forth, which are quite quite effective. And um, it was really interesting what you said, Hugh, about the fact that there's a donkey, documentary style approach to Bamboozled, or, or well, maybe not to Bamboozled itself, but to Spike Lee's direction in the sense that it's it's cut, it's interspersed with clips and snippets from films and so on and so forth. Well, Spike Lee is a very accomplished documentary maker yeah. um, and, and probably made more documentary films than he has feature films, although they're less popular and less well-known. But in using that kind of video, um, uh, digital video kind of processing as well, he adds to that um, kind of um, grimy realism. Well, no, realism is the wrong word, actually. It, it's totally the wrong word, but that kind of um, that documentary style 
approach to it, that kind of on a ground level um, process. But what I think it does really interestingly is when you when you when when the program itself, when when the New Millennium Minstrel Show kicks in, it's on crisp 16 millimeter stock film footage. Okay. Uh, and you, when you see the difference between the digital video and the, the 16 millimeter film stock, it is marked. So it's the, 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 the program itself, the clips of the program itself are crisp. They are clear. They are cinematic. They are, um, they're really, you know, the cinematography is beautiful. And then it cuts back to the digital, um, the digital video. And I think that's a really interesting contrast in the way that the film's made. Really clever contrast in the sense that you get that intimacy and that cinematic approach depending on what you're looking at as well. And it takes a long time for the cinematic approach to kick in because you probably don't see the first minstrel program for about an hour, I would say. It's only at the hour point where it kicks in. It's the it's the Hugh Morgan adage that you look at the film an hour in and something <laughs> happens. And at the point at which an hour kicks in, you see the first kind of um, more detailed kind of uh, exposure of what the film looks like and I was shocked it took me totally out of the sequence and actually I viewed the program in a completely different way I was watching a film yeah that's interesting I actually didn't clock <coughs> consciously the, the thing I can see it in my head that it did mm. immediately change but I didn't, it didn't I'm not knowledgeable enough about the, the films to make that, uh, that uh, yeah. change but yes you're entirely right uh, yeah so I, th- I thought that was that was interesting um in, in terms of the kind of formalism of how that the film was produced, and I think that is that's yeah. part of of his kind of documentary background yeah. as well. Well, the film talk about the the, the hour long heart stop. It didn't occur to me until right now, but actually we talked about some of the powerful imagery again. The audience in blackface, the room full of memorabilia. Yeah. The thing that was really like a punch to the gut was the moment when Man Ray and Womack put on blackface. Yeah, that, the first that, time. Yeah, for the first time, it that was almost like the the hour long heart stop. But that was a very very powerful moment again because they they, they, yeah. they they they're coached by Sloan to do the old fashioned way. I think this is going to show what was done. They have to burn yeah. cork and mix it with water, and then and then and then apply it with a sponge. And it's it's a real punch to the gut. They, they both end by they do it alone as well. They're not doing it together. They're they're both alone putting it on separately. Um, and they have to kind of go. It's a very time. somber. It's a very somber movie. It's yeah. really moving actually, isn't it? Yeah. And then they're doing it at the beginning again. The first time they do it, they're almost a little bit confused, a little bit perplexed yeah. what's going on. As it goes on, there is one moment when they're, when they're putting it on and they look in physical pain, adding just the yeah. makeup. It, it looks like a very, very difficult moment. I think this, the actors themselves said they had problems with doing it as well. Um, I'm not surprised. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's... I mean, I have to say, a lot of the actors in the film it have... It's a, there, are, there are a lot of actors that play very challenging roles in this film. Yeah. So Michael Rappaport, who plays Thomas Dunwitty... Um, he has to be obnoxiously racist. He has to he has to black up, effectively. That that's that's pretty hard going. Yeah. You've got black actors who have to black up in the film as well. That's pretty hard going. Yeah. Well, I think again, it's it's almost again. Michael Rapport has almost made that career of playing sort of affable idiots. So it's not mm. too much of a stretch for him to end up being an affable idiot who's also a swine. Um, but I think yeah. Yeah, the, the certainly the two lead actors. Um, have not just on put on the blackface, but also the, the huge red lips, and then drop into those affectations. They're performing, they're the performing yeah. as they were a century ago. That's that's why it's interesting why they said it was the the new millennium minstrel show because it's not updated at all. Um, in terms no, of so you could just transpose that right back a hundred years ago, people would accept it as being yeah, this the show. They're, again, they're they're in a, an old fashioned watermelon patch. They're they're dressed yeah. as as sort of um, turn of the century, century tramps. Um, so there's nothing new millennium about it. They haven't tried to update it, which is I think again a deliberate choice. They're showing it back as it was. 
So it's it's a bit of a, a misnomer calling it the new millennium. But they're 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 reaching back into the past um, and literally doing even even the, the gags they do they don't really make any. I think it makes one one joke about some Captain Kirk, but other jokes um, they're they're very much of that time. They they do the little routines where they're finishing the sentences and, and this kind of stuff. You can see oh that must have been you know lifted from a, an old sketch because that's that kind of musical sketch they would do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to um, just reference the, the the closing kind of montage as well. I know we, we've talked about it briefly, but I think that's another powerful moment in the yes, film. So there yeah. are, the, the film, although is in, it is it is a, a satire, it's, uh, it's it's funny, it's uncomfortable, but there are points in the film where the humour is it leaves and it, you're, you're left with a very uncomfortable um, and, and, and such, you know very moving processes as well. So the, the the imagery at the end of the film is it's a slightly trope. It has to be said he does that quite a lot. If you've seen Black Klansman, there's a sequence at the end of that film which is incredibly powerful, and actually um, makes the it, it elevates the film significantly based on that final kind of ten minutes. And I think the same happens in Bamboozled as well because despite I think the issue is that despite Spike Lee's pointed rambunctious anger the montage at the end of the film brings it down a level and i don't mean in terms of quality but it brings it down a level and it brings it to a level of much more kind of slow burning thoughtful reaction and at the end of the it's it's almost like it's a it's a it's a um a work of genius to put that at the end of the film at the end of everything that you've seen, at the end of the kind of extraordinary hysteria that's gone on, you see that montage of the imagery of, of early Hollywood films and, and kind of the entertainment industry. It's quite marked, I think, and it certainly pulls its punches. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about the film? Um more of again uh, an aside to that it was again certainly it's, it's, it's again it's meant to be a thought-provoking film, and it did occur to me again in, in the UK. We had the minstrel show, the minstrel show, up until the 70s. 70s. Um, the, the 1970s, that was seen as... as but again, um, and again, I'd, I remember when I, you know, when I was a kid, you'd have marmalade with a gollywog symbol on it. Yeah. And that was yeah. that was seen as, okay, yeah. you'd cut the tokens out and you'd go off and get a, a big gollywog right. top. That was yeah. a thing that was, again, it's like within our lifetimes. We're, not, we're quite old now, but it seems like a strange thing in the 1980s. That was on the supermarket shelves. That was not seen as a, as a, as a troubling thing. That was just what there was. Um, and actually, yeah, you're right. But, you know, even I would say even into the 80s, you had adverts like Kiora, which yeah, yeah. whilst, you know, whilst a, a, a kind of softer, more comedic version of that are archetypal stereotypes. Right. Yeah. They are problematic in and of themselves. And Kiora, those adverts I used to love as a kid, yeah. not because I had any any inclination that there was something wrong with them. But looking back on them, you think, my days. How did the, how did anyone get away with that? Well, this is the funny thing. Is it, I was the, what made me think of that is I, mean, I think the Gollywog is a different because that's more of an imperial. It, yeah, that, is, that yeah. belongs to the UK. But like the Minstrel Show and the Cura, I mean, it isn't, it, it, it isn't it British. Is, so yeah. again, it's almost like they were they were using you know racist and stereotypical tropes that they, that they didn't understand and that we didn't understand. Yeah. Um, because I remember the the, the, the last Minstrels being again were actually in colour TV because it was the the seventies. They were using sort of brown makeup and pink lips, and it was almost like they didn't understand what, yeah. the, what the racism should be. There should be that yeah. uh, dark. If you're gonna do lips. racist TV, do it yeah, right. Get your research in. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 of course, 
but, but, but you know, the prescience of, of the film as well is that, you know, we've recently had Trudeau as, as the, oh, the, yeah. the controversies of him dressing up as uh, or, uh, in blackface as well. So, you know, we like to think we've moved on, but, um, well, I say we like to think we've moved on. It is assumed that culture has moved on, but actually we still harbour those um, very problematic views, I think. I don't think they've gone. Well, no, I remember, again, just a few years ago, um, we were visiting, again, uh, visiting a little... Uh, probably a country house somewhere out in the, yeah. the, the shires and um, there was a, a small village that existed on you know, selling cream teas and, and um, magnets yeah. and in this this bookshop we visited there was a little corner with a gollywog display oh, and really? you could just tell again the, 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 the mood of the person behind the counter was you dare challenge me say you, know, yeah. you, you tell me I can't have this that this is racist <laughs> Yeah. Was, I mean, we laugh, but it's tragic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it is a thing now that people, even now, will, will, will plant their flag and say, I'm allowed to have this. Um, yeah, I'm allowed to have it. Um, it's political correctness gone mad. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that's mentioned too, political correctness. <laughs> but again, it, it's, if political correctness means that gollywogs don't appear on marmalade jars in, in, in this decade... <laughs> I'm all for political ages, correctness. I'll, I'll right? take a bit of that. Um, yeah. But it, it, yeah, the, this, the, the, so that that, you know, that I mean, this is probably it's like you know a one percent of one percent of what America yeah. has in terms of of that that imagery and that saturation. Yeah. But yeah. just seeing again Pierre's office filled with it. Um, yeah, it's filled with it as well. Is, yeah, and and yeah, it was just it's and, and the the end montage too. It is just a punch in the gut again and again and again and again. It is. It is. And you know, and against that speaking against a white middle class person that has no, you know, no, would never know. suffer from those imageries. To again, to what it must be like to be a black American seeing that as well, saying that's actually happened. This is our film history. You know, the yeah. most yeah. most famous early film was was a Birth of a Nation. <laughs> yeah. It started. Well, all. I think I think the Birth of a Nation is one of the first is, yeah. feature films. Yeah. You know, it's and and actually Birth of a Nation features quite heavily in. Black Klansman as well, yeah, yeah. the late Spike Lee movie as well. So you know, it it is it is you know you've got you've and the got first talking picture being in blackface it, as yeah. well. It's like it's every, every beat in cinema history is, is yeah, punctuated it is, it is. with this. I know it's madness. Yeah. yeah, it's madness. I mean, the thing that shocked me was was literally the Ginger Rogers and, and Fred Astaire um, yeah, yeah. Uh, sequence. I thought, what? <laughs> you know, that shows my ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. As well, I mean, the, the film shows up a lot of ignorance in this, in this, and it makes you feel uncomfortable in that. I suppose, I suppose that does lead me to um, the, 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 you mentioned this earlier about the kind of the the, the way that um, the the program just becomes an incredible success, and the way that Dunwoody doesn't need any persuading and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of kind of disagreed with you a little bit with regards to the point of the film isn't to do that. No, it was, it was more what, case of my, my my desire for a good story, but I appreciated that's not what it was there. Yeah. For. And and whilst I think that's the purpose of the film, I don't think that means that it's it's um, absolved of uh, any criticism because of that. I think that the film is perhaps too markedly, pointedly angry to the extent that, a, for me, a satire or a satirical process. I mean, there is nothing subtle about Amuzal. Right. It, it is it is it's one of the most in your face films I can remember seeing for a long time. And it doesn't let up for over two hours. So in that regard, it's a long film to be sat there and being bombarded with racially incendiary imagery, which it does for two hours. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. And I suppose part, part of me in that process thinks this is almost like overkill. Um, and I understand, you know, not criticizing the purpose of what Spike Lee was trying to do. It works effectively. But I have to ask myself a couple of questions, which is, 
you know, does does Spike Lee make his point? And then does Spike Lee make his point again and again and again and again? And I think Spike Lee makes his point a lot in the film. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but for me, there's a lot of points being made, and because of that, it's a little bit messy. Yeah. You know. Also, do it, I found the film funny, but how do I feel? about watching that film and the racist imagery that's on it. So, you know, the, the comparison would be with something like The Producers, which in which the point of the offensiveness of the production is that it effectively ridicules the Nazis, right? Yeah, yeah. This doesn't ridicule. The, the producer yeah, the producer is much more, more more gentle than that. You can have, yeah, you know, um, yeah. written and directed by a Jewish um writer producer you know have a, a, a jewish characters put on swastikas and dance around with nazis somehow that didn't feel at all uncomfortable it was very funny um, so yeah so, so so the comparison i would make is that if in the producers the musical was about the gas chambers yeah yeah that's not funny yeah and that's that's a much harder film to watch and, and bamboozled is much more on the latter end of that yeah Yes, so in that regard, well, yes, no, not even that extreme. If if they had, you know, if the producers had hired an artist that did nothing but Jewish characteristics of Nazi posters, something like that, you'd, you'd be you'd yeah. be faced with that imagery rather than just laughing at how silly the Nazis are and yeah. the comedy of it all. You'd be facing with the reality of it. And, and that's what I mean. You know, in, in, in being fair to Spike Lee, that's why Bamboos is a di- it's a different film to, to to the producers. It shares the same kind of construct and context, yeah. but it's trying to do a different thing, I guess. Really, yeah. Bamboos isn't trying to ridicule in any way, shape, or form. It is. It is an. It is an. an uh, it's. It's a polemic. It's an utter polemic. It's, it's a challenge. It happens to be humorous. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I will say it's. Um... I've, I've almost every weekend at Chromosome I've seen at least twice to get my head around. Yeah. I, c- I couldn't rewatch Bamboozled on such short notice. I, 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 was... probably, I mean, I would like to watch this again because there's probably a lot in it that I missed, but, but I couldn't watch it again right away. I'd need, yeah. I'd need, you know, six months or a year or something yeah. before I watch it again. Um, Having said that, you know, it, 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 it certainly sticks in the mind. Yeah, I was thinking, talk about, you know, the moments of, of comedy. <laughs> Maybe even without that, that's kind of the carrier cream that gets across the message because if that wasn't there, um, it would be a lot harder to take. It's hard to take anyway. If it was mm. just, oh god, if it'd been played straight, as in if it'd just been like they're making a racist show and this is the reaction to it, it would yeah. have been really much of a really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, are there any other films that you think might might you'd recommend to go with Bamboozled, other than perhaps Network and the producers? That, those are the two obvious ones. There was one that was referenced. Um, I. Th- I have seen it myself, but I remember it being mentioned. I think it's called The Face in the Crowd. That um, oh, okay. is a is an older movie. I think it was nineteen yeah. forties. Um, yeah, uh, possibly that. Uh, of the similar idea of the um, radio stations flagging and gets a drunk off the street to 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 just you know speak his mind and yeah. um, and it, he just goes crazy. I think Spike Lee. The reason it's in my mind is Spike Lee used that as one of one of his um, his inspirations for that. So A Face in the Crowd, I think, is probably worth a watch. Um, ah, okay. So that, uh, it's an interesting one. I I've heard of A Face in the Crowd. I don't yeah. know it hugely. The, the the film I was going to recommend would be a recent film um, that's on Netflix, which is called High Flying Bird. Okay. Um, and it's uh it's a film by Steven Soderbergh who has done you know the oceans the oceans films yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a film about um, basketball uh, and I know nothing about basketball um, but it, it's quite an effective film in the sense it, it describes the principles under which um, upcoming and um, 
kind of prospective basketball players get contracts with various teams, but it does it from an African-American perspective. And effectively what the film does is both provide an insight into the kind of mechanics of the agent sports player relationships, which is a little bit like the television relationships you get in bamboozled. It's not, it's not anywhere near as, as incendiary, don't get me wrong. But it, but what it does do is it also presents an interesting concept which is what's in bamboozled which is the fact that the african-american experience in america is is often um presented to the wider american culture through either entertainment or sport um and so as an as an african-american male you are considered successful if you are either an entertainer or a sports person not necessarily an intellect yeah, and that's I mean it doesn't it doesn't present it in quite the um, quite the in your face way that Bamboozled does, but it's a very interesting film and it's got a fantastic script as well. So I would recommend High Flying Bird. High Flying Bird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So two films. Anything else we want to consider with regards to the film? Nothing. That's it for me. Okay. I think that's it for me. So we will move on from our analysis of Bamboozled to the scores on the doors, and we'll be back shortly. Welcome back. Uh, we have now reached the, uh, the climax of this evening's podcast. Oh. oh! As tradition dictates, it's James who makes the first score. Okay. Um, so I liked Bamboozle a lot. It's not an easy watch. Um, it's a challenging experience, I think. Um, and uh, you know, as much as I like to think of myself as um, you know, not in any way ignorant to the kind of messages and um, imagery that is being purported in Bamboozled. It does leave you thinking um, about your own role in um, being complicit in some of the kind of issues that are presented in the film itself. I think the film is very funny. I think it's very uncomfortable. I think it is messy. I think it has a stark visual imagery which lives long in the memory. I think that there are things in the film that don't work, but I think overall the message that the film presents is presented in such a way that Spike Lee is successful in his purpose and his process. So on that regard, I'm going to give the film four disembodied crombie heads. Okay. That's fair enough. Uh, for myself, um, I think yes, it's um, from the way I'd approach a film. Again, the, the the plot could be more robust, but I immediately appreciate it was not about the plot. It was about the challenge. It was about making you think, in, which it certainly did. Again, it succeeded in that. It's a hard film to enjoy, um, but, yeah. but, but it's it wants to provoke you, and I think it, it succeeds in that. It makes you think. It it leaves against. It, it stays with you for a long time afterwards, and it's very hard to to revisit any of those ideas and themes again without having to reference the film. For all that, I think, again, some of the performances let it down a bit. Some of the, some of the scenes could be stronger. For me, I would put it's a three Crombie film. I think that's fair as well. Um, I suppose it would have been a five-star film, but there was no Keith Weston in it. <laughs> oh, Keith Weston, where are you? I think any film can be immediately improved with a Keith Weston, much like any lunch or dinner can be improved by a poached egg. <laughs> now you mention it, Keith Weston would have been great in the Delacroix role. 
He would have <laughs> Yeah. Well, he was the same character, really. He was, but yeah, far more debonair, Keith West. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So we move on to um, every listener's favourite part of the show, <laughs> the, the end section, <laughs> where we discuss what the next film will be. And this month... And this it's month... It's going to be huge choice. Well, this month, month and next month. Well, it's my final choice of the year. Well, your final choice of the year, yes. Um, better make it a good one. <laughs> There's pressure now. <laughs> Let's I, not have uses. Until I, until I said it, I hadn't realised my final choice of the year. But uh, I think... This is a, this is a film we may need to watch after the certainly the, the experience we've just had. So um, slight gear shift. Next, <laughs> I'm laughing. Oh Next no, 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 it's going to be newsies. We're going to rewatch newsies again. We've never done this before. Fair crack of the whip. <laughs> Next month we will be watching Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> Does that have John Lithgow in it? It has uh, for a podcast favourite John Lithgow. So we've been doing Weekend at Crombies for such a long time now that we are actually um, watching films with actors who have been in previous films of Weekend at Crombies. We've, got, we've, we've, we've just got said that now, with Jada Pinkett Smith. That's, uh, Jada that's... Pinkett Smith, Thomas Jefferson Bird, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, what? Liam Neeson yes. And, uh, yeah. and, and now to urge John Lithgow. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, can... get in there. <laughs> we, got, we got our theme anyway, so... Uh, Harry, I assume you know Harry and the Hendersons. Um, I am aware of Harry and the Hendersons. I, I, Harry and the Hendersons is a film I have watched about a million times. Really? Harry and the Hendersons is a film I've seen once, and that was when it oh, came oh. out. So I'm very much no, looking I've forward. seen this a million times. This is your The Tall Guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let us but I've not seen it for a long time, cool. I'm glad. Well, let's watch it next week, unless our audience rushes out and get it, which is why it's so hard for us to get a hold of two copies of films. <laughs> Anyway, so that's what we're watching. Uh, is there any further thoughts, James? Not from me. Uh, I, I, I um, only left um, with the message to our listeners, which is um, enjoy your weekend at Crombies. <laughs> Evening all. Weekend at Crombies. The question that you're going to ask me, as is befitting each episode of Weekend at Crombies. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Are you doing that now? You've, you've, you've reached your, your podcast voice. Yeah, this is my podcast but voice. You, you've yeah, got to lead us back in. You've got to get a welcome back. Oh, <laughs> you, yeah. You just okay, went straight right. into, I presume. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly we weren't just talking, we were broadcasting. I turned into Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs>